We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 again. Last month when we first began to understand just a little bit of what it was this season that we were entering into, this season of coronavirus, an actress organized a celebrity video sing-along, host of stars singing parts of a song that John Lennon wrote and recorded almost 50 years ago now. If you've had any connection with pop music at all, you've no doubt heard the song Imagine. It's been called a peace anthem with universal appeal. It begins, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. And, and the song goes on to envision a world with no countries, no religions, not even possessions. As one writer recently noted, Imagine seems to get its greatest attention and airplay in times of trouble like the world is in now. When people feel like there is chaos and suffering, they, they almost want to jettison rational thinking and just sort of dream about everything being at peace. Well, Acts chapter 2, we're going to settle down in the closing verses of Peter's sermon this morning as he's speaking to this crowd in Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost. Let me read this section for just a moment that we're going to look at. He, he gives his final concluding thoughts in verse 36 of Acts 2. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself." And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were at it that day about 3,000 souls. We know that Peter had preached about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and verse 36 is his summary statement to, to bring them to the place of what he most wants to leave on their minds, and that is this Jesus is no ordinary man. This Jesus is Lord, he is master, he is ruler, and he is the Christ. That means he is the Savior. He is the, the long-awaited Messiah sent from God to rescue you, and you killed him. This is, this is as, as strong a charge as you can possibly get speaking to this crowd of religious followers of Judaism who have gone to celebrate a feast, and, and it clearly leaves them searching for answers because we see them say, what shall we do? This, this is a plea along the lines of someone who is begging for a remedy when the doctor has just said, you're dying. You, you are in desperate straits, and there is urgency in this. There is desperation. There's this overwhelming sense of agony and despair, and they say to Peter, tell us, what are we supposed to do? If this is all true, now what? And Peter responds with two directions in verse 38. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I want to focus on those two things, the two things that Peter prescribed. Now, I know we're inclined to say, hey, 
We're a Bible church. We, we live and breathe and preach the gospel. So, so why do we need to spend time here on the obvious? Well, be, because we're all human. And the tendency when we speak the gospel, when we deal with other people, is we, we want them to like us. We, we want them to, you know, to give us a little heart that, that says that they like what we've shared or like what we've said. And so when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we all know the temptation to in some way downplay elements of it, to minimize some of the impact of it. That video of the song Imagine that I mentioned a moment ago went viral. The, the Instagram post from that original post by that actress has been viewed more than nine million times. It's been shared millions more times. It, it was shown on a number of different sort of entertainment news segments just applauding it and, and the wonderful concern of these actors and actresses and singers. There's wide appeal for John Lennon's message of universalism, which basically says it, it all works out in the end. We're all actually pretty good, and, and, and when it comes right down to it, just believe in something and, and be nice to people and, and be a happy person, and, and, and we'll all find paradise. It'll all be good. The message that God is loving and kind is true, and it's what people want to hear, and it gets lots of shares and likes, but if that's all that is spoken about God, then we've missed something. God is more than loving and kind. That's why the conclusion of this first Christian sermon is, is so crucial, because it is a reminder that the gospel of Jesus Christ flows from the holiness of a God who judges sin. It comes from truth, and it confronts our pride, and it, it confronts our comfortable sort of self-love, and it calls us to confess our sin and to repent. The coronavirus has been the kind of glaring global catastrophe that, that reminds us of just how broken this world is, how, how desperate the world is, and how futile it is to pretend that somehow death and sorrow and suffering could all just take a holiday and that people could all just get along. All you have to do is watch the responses to this pandemic to see that anger and hatred are alive and well. We live in a fallen world that is divided on all kinds of levels, and the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the heart of man's problem, which is his sinful rebellion against his creator. What Jesus Christ came to address is our sin. And so here in Acts chapter 2, most of Peter's audience is made up of of Jewish pilgrims. They came to Jerusalem for a, a festival. They came with family. They reunited with old friends. They came for what would be a joyous occasion of celebrating the spring harvest. The early wheat had come in, and, and this is a time for joyous gathering. But in the back of their minds, any trip to Jerusalem is also this constant pressing reminder that all is not well. There is not peace in the world. Things are not all good because it is a reminder as they go back to Jerusalem that the Jewish people are still very much under the thumb of a cruel, tyrannical government. Rome is still in control, had been in control at this time for 60 or 70 years, had installed its own kings over the Jewish people. The, the current king was a, a, a tyrant. He did great building programs, but often mistreated the workers who were building the things that he wanted. The Roman military during these sorts of feasts beefed up their military presence just to make it clear that we are in control here and there will be no 
No rebellion, no trouble from you. We're in charge. There was this sort of uneasy truce that lasted between Rome and its Jewish subjects, and it went on for probably another 30 years from the time of Jesus Christ before the rebellion became full-throated, and by the year AD 70, the Romans sent their army into Jerusalem to destroy it. And so these people are coming to Jerusalem, are coming to celebrate, but there is also that, that constant air of, of hopelessness, of, of the realization that life is not what they want. And on top of that, now many are grieving because of the speech that, that Peter has just given, this sermon that's recorded that we've been reading about here in Acts chapter 2. What we've read so far is the preaching of a, a, a Galilean fisherman, a guy who is untrained in, in rabbinical thoughts, who, who's not gifted in public speaking, who hasn't done public speaking, and he is standing on the streets of Jerusalem in front of this large crowd, and he is preaching to them. And his central message to them is, God did offer you hope. God sent a Savior, and you killed him. God sent you one to rescue you. He sent Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and Peter, as we've already seen in this message, said to them, this Jesus did and said things among you that you couldn't possibly dismiss. You saw it or your friends saw it and they told you about it and you know it's true that God attested his supernatural power through Jesus, his, his power through his teaching, through his signs. God did all of this and yet you either overtly or passively committed his murder. In some way or another, you were involved in putting to death the Savior. You, you conspired, in fact, with the very government that you despise to crucify the Messiah that God sent to you. So, so Peter essentially is saying to these people, you, you can go on with your festival, you can go on with Pentecost, and you can pretend that you are worshiping God, and you can, you can even imagine in your minds what life would be like if, if Rome was gone and wasn't in control. But listen, God sent you a deliverer to rescue you from an enemy worse than Rome. He sent the Prince of Peace. He sent light into the darkness. He sent life. He put a man in your midst who did nothing wrong, who was gentle and humble and meek in spirit, who loved you and served you, and you killed him. Luke reminds us, back in the Gospel of Luke, that, that when Jesus preached his first message, it was his hometown, his synagogue in Nazareth, and, and, and Jesus steps up, and the scroll of the book of Isaiah is given to him. And, and Jesus, if you remember, he opens that scroll and he begins to read from out of Isaiah. Luke 4 tells us, he, he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says he rolled up the scroll. And it tells us in Luke that many were amazed at the things that he said. They marveled at his words. What Jesus said to them is, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That was the line that, that must have caught them. 
this prophecy of Isaiah that the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to, to bring good news to the poor and to free captives and give sight to the blind and to, to rescue those who are oppressed, this is now fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, I am that one. I am the one that God has sent. Within moments, Luke says, the synagogue was filled with wrath and they had turned against Jesus and they grabbed him and ran him to the edge of town to kill him and it was supernatural intervention that caused Jesus to disappear from their midst. So far in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached the truth of Jesus Christ. God sent his Savior to you to proclaim liberty and favor and you killed him. The peace and the hope that you want so badly was right there. And you despise the grace of God and the gift that he offered to you. As if that wasn't enough, Peter then goes on to say, it's not just that you killed the Christ, the, the, the Savior, the Messiah, but he, he also says he is Lord, so you have, you have taken God in flesh. You have taken Jesus, who is master, and, and you have killed him. And because he is God in flesh, he did not remain dead. Death could not hold him. I and others saw him resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven as only the Lord could do. And now the very one that you rejected rules at the right hand of the Father. Look again at verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now what? God had, had sent the cure. He had provided the, the remedy, the hope. They didn't have to imagine what it would be like to have peace and, and forgiveness and life. It came to them in the very person of Jesus Christ. And they said, nope, we, we don't want you. We know where you're from. We know enough about you. We don't think you're anything special, and we are not going to bow to you. We're going to continue to do this on our own terms. And yet now, after Peter's preaching, they are in despair. This is a fabulous lesson for us on the work of the Spirit of God in bringing conviction to people's hearts. Here is Peter, simple teaching of God's word. What, what Peter has done is he has taken the, the, the instrument that Ephesians calls the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He has gone back to the Old Testament and he has preached scripture to them. He has recited scripture to them. He has told them how this is to be interpreted, how in light of Jesus, the, the, here's what this means. And he has applied it by convicting them of their sin and that sword of the Spirit, that work of the Spirit through Peter brings conviction to these people. Thousands now are brought up short, are, are at that place of, of feeling utterly empty and saying, I, you're right, I, I'm lost, so what do I do? So that's when Peter answers and says in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God on Pentecost demonstrates to us the amazing work of his spirit. Here is a, a fisherman. Here is a guy with no rabbinic 
training with no public speaking experience, now delivering his first sermon. He takes three passages in the Old Testament, one from Joel and two from the Psalms, and he declares how these passages are showing us that God sent Jesus to be the Messiah to rescue his people and that you now have crucified him and, and describing how Jesus would rise from the dead from Psalm 110 and how he now would pour out his spirit, just as the book of Joel said that. And Luke says 3,000 people were convicted to the core. And when they pleaded for direction, so, so what do we do? Brothers, what's the answer here? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Anyone who will do this, he says, will receive not only forgiveness, but the blessing of the Spirit of God poured out. This, this is the essence of man's response to the gospel. This is important to us. I had actually, I would hoped this morning, originally I was thinking we'd go through the rest of Acts chapter 2. I am, I am anxious to get into the next few verses, starting down in verse 42. But the more I thought about this, this, this is something we must understand and we must be bold about. Peter's response to people who want to know, what do I do? How do I, how do I find hope? How am I right with God? And we need to understand this. It raises some questions, not the least of which is this word repent. That's not one that we ordinarily use in our everyday language to call people to repent. It's a distasteful world in, a word in our culture that, that, that's relegated largely to old movies of old religious preachers in the South and tent meetings who, who say things like repent, or you see it on signs in a farmer's field you know, along the highway that you need to repent, and, and it doesn't get much use in our ordinary language. In fact, even in evangelical circles, there have sadly been debates about the place of repentance in gospel preaching and witnessing. What, what role does repentance have? We know that later in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, when they are with the Philippian jailer who says, brothers, what, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No specific mention there of repentance. And so there's the question. Are we dealing with two different sort of sets of instructions here in terms of responding to the gospel? Are they maybe even opposing in some sense? Is it just faith? Is it just repentance? Is it both? And, and where does baptism fit? So let's talk about repentance. Metanoeo is the, the Greek word. And, and so it's a compound word. Second part of that word is the easier part. Noeo is, is, is thinking. It's, it's the understanding of how the mind works. Thinking, comprehending, contemplating, those sorts of things. And so that part of the word is fairly clear. It's the meta at the beginning, M-E-T-A, that, that, that we have to think about just a little bit. We know words like metaphysics, metaphor, metadata, all of those kinds of words, and that the range of those words and their meaning sort of points up the, the, the challenge with meta. It's not a simple word. It can mean after, behind, in, amongst, in the midst of something, all, all meanings that that generally have in common the idea of some kind of movement. Movement after or behind, movement into or amongst. And so if you combine meta with this word for comprehending and thinking, the idea of repent, metanoeo, is the idea of a change in thinking that produces a, a change in behavior, a change in direction. Something has gone on in comprehending. 
and it, it's caused a different direction now, a movement away from something and towards something else, and so it's a change of life that follows a change in thinking. It, it was not a concept Peter had to explain to his Jewish audience. If they were at all familiar with the Old Testament, they had heard the calls to repent. One example is in Ezekiel 14.6, God speaking to the leaders of Israel, and he says to them, repent and turn away from your idols, turn away from your abominations. Three times, shuv, the, 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 the Hebrew word for repent, three times he commands the same word, turn, turn. Turn, he says in Ezekiel, turn away from these things. The, the Hebrew word included the idea of sorrow. It wasn't simply a mechanical sort of, I've gone this way and this hasn't worked, as if I'm sort of walking through a maze and I've bumped into the wall, so I'll turn around and go the other direction. There's actually a, a sense of sorrow in that. There's a realization that I've gone in the wrong direction. And in fact, he says, idols and abominations and things that, that God finds to be wicked. And I've... I, I've been grieved by those, and I've turned away from them and toward the living God. And so when this Jewish audience says to Peter, now what? And Peter's first word is repent. He's very clear that something has to change. He's saying your, your attitude, your thinking, everything that you brought to the table here this day in your mind about Jesus your rejection of him, your belief that he is dead and gone, your, 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 your failing to even bring him back to mind, all that you think about Jesus has been wrong. God sent him to you. God sent him to be Savior, and you turned from him. And so Peter says, if you are, if you are now genuinely grieving that, if you're at that place, as you say, well, what do we do now? And you are cut to the heart and you are grieving for what you have thought about and acted about toward Jesus, then turn from that. Admit that that is sin. Acknowledge that you have acted this way and you have thought this way and turn to embrace Jesus for who he is, Lord and Savior. Believe that he is who God has declared him to be. That's what Peter says in verse 36. He made this Jesus whom you crucified to be Lord and Christ. And so when he says repent, He's saying, stop the, the nonsense before, the sin before, and your rejection of him, and embrace him for who he is. So even though Acts 2.38 doesn't use the words faith or belief, they are included in that word repent, because it is an admission that I was utterly wrong in what I believed before and how I acted toward Jesus, and now this is how I am to embrace him as Lord and Savior. Call them to repent was to call them to believe on the Lord Jesus, just as Paul and Silas said in Acts 16.31. Embrace Jesus on his terms as Lord and Savior, as King. Because the Lord, the King, becomes the suffering servant. The King is the one who laid down all of the prerogatives of royalty in order to be the Savior who gave himself for our atonement who sacrificed himself on the cross and died in your place so that by believing you may be saved. Repent. Admit that your prior beliefs about Jesus, whether they be that, well, Jesus was just some, some historic figure or just some, some rabbi or some teacher or some good guy, and that's it. Repent. Acknowledge that they are wrong and fully believe 
the gospel of God, that this Jesus is Lord and he came to be your Savior. And in fact, he goes on in verse 38, and when he speaks of baptism, it speaks of the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel is not the gospel. It is not truly good news if we don't understand what we are being rescued from. If you don't come to the place, as, as, as these individuals did, of seeing their need, then it's not good news. It's just interesting religious news along with everything else. There, there must be an understanding that Jesus Christ came to provide forgiveness of sin. Think back to that first preaching. I mentioned it to you before from Luke chapter 4 of Jesus when he's in Nazareth. And, and, and two things upset his audience in that context. The, the one was he's clearly claiming to be the Messiah. When Jesus says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing this today, he is saying to them, I am the one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim this good news. And so he is clearly making a messianic statement. And we know from the rest of Luke 4 that part of the discussion that's murmuring among the crowd is, wait, this is Joseph's son. We know this is the carpenter's son. This is an ordinary guy. We've, we've watched him grow up, and now he's claiming to be the Messiah. That was the one thing that, that upset them. But the second thing was, if, if, if Jesus is saying that Isaiah's words are being fulfilled right now in your hearing, that meant he was lumping all of them in with the people that he had just described. The poor, the captives, the blind, the oppressed. These were religious Jews who were at synagogue because they felt like they were doing pretty good in front of God. They, they were fulfilling their religious duties. And here comes this local guy who's not had rabbinic training down in Jerusalem, who's not sat under any of the leading rabbis, and he's now saying, you are desperately in need of sight and liberty and release and God's favor because you are captive and you are oppressed and you are lost. No wonder they wanted to kill him at that point. Jesus didn't come to preach a gospel of fulfilling your best dreams and giving you your best self. He didn't come to, to set you on the path to authentic self-expression. He didn't come to lift you up because he saw you failing at your potential and falling short. He didn't come to elevate your sense of self-worth. Some of those things may, may become your experience in some measure as a believer in Jesus Christ, but those are byproducts of, of living a life that keeps in step with the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ came to deal with sin and with sinners. Jesus Christ came to bring forgiveness. After his resurrection, on that, that first Lord's Day, that Easter Sunday as we look at it, Luke chapter 24 says that night he comes and he appears to his disciples. And it says in Luke 24, he showed them from the, the Old Testament scriptures how it was God's design that the Christ, that would be the Savior, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Let's give Peter credit. He got that message because that's exactly what he preached on Pentecost. Jesus Christ had said, I'm showing you all this from Scripture. Probably the, the lessons that, 
that Jesus showed those disciples on that night are, are some of the same lessons Peter took and he now preaches on Pentecost because Jesus has gone to the Old Testament and has showed them that the Messiah must die and on the third day must rise and that now beginning in Jerusalem, you must proclaim forgiveness of sins in his name. Jesus came because your greatest need and my greatest need is the forgiveness of our sins because God is holy and he is just and his justice against our sin must be satisfied. And that has been done through what Jesus, the Lord and the Christ, did on the cross. So now, he says, Peter, you must repent. You must repent for the forgiveness of your sins. You must be baptized in his name for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a lot we can say about baptism here. Let's just think of a couple of things that we see in this passage. Peter includes this in his instructions. This is part of the response now he gives them to this gospel preaching. His audience, again, much like the word repent, didn't, didn't have to stop and go question, what do you mean by baptize? What, we don't understand that. That word baptizo had the idea of immerse or dip primarily in water, they, and, and they understood this. Jewish people regularly did what were called ritual washings, things when they believed they had become unclean in some way, going to a pool, washing themselves off, going through sort of ritual acts of, of purification. But the interesting thing Peter says here is his command is in the passive voice. You go and be baptized in the name of Jesus. This isn't something that you, you control or you do. Not, not go and wash yourself as you think is best, but rather you allow yourself to be immersed. And what this sounded like to them undoubtedly was, was something that they knew previously to only be done to Gentiles who converted to, to Judaism. They were baptized as a sign of being washed of the old way of life and being made new. Daryl Bach, a commentator on the book of Acts, writes, to agree to baptism is to affirm in a public act what the heart has already done to come into relationship with God. Baptism is the representation of the cleansing that belongs to salvation. This washing signifies the forgiveness of sins that Jesus brings and the emergence into a new, clean life with fresh enablement that his work provides. Peter calls for each one to be baptized in order to express a personal, visible turning to God. The, the, the point that, that Bach is making here, and that's clear as we move through the rest of the book of Acts, is that the, the mere act of baptism does not save. Immersion in water does not secure salvation. It is the repentance and faith. It is the turning from sin and the trusting in Jesus Christ alone that saves. Baptism is the public display of that repentance and faith having already taken place in the person's heart. And it's significant that, that Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a, this is a humble act. This act of immersion would be a, a public declaration that the very one you had been rejecting, the very one whose death you participated in, maybe even just complicitly, but in some way you took part in, you are now trusting fully for the forgiveness of your sins. You are now declaring your faith in Jesus Christ to give you new life. Another commentator puts it like this, as they invoke the name of Jesus in the act of being immersed in water, 
They acknowledge Jesus as the cause of the forgiveness they seek. They publicly confess that Jesus has the authority and power to cleanse them from their sins. Peter says, repent. Declare that what you have said and thought and believed before about Jesus is wrong, that you have been at odds with your creator and in rebellion and sin against him, and embrace Jesus as the Lord and Savior who was crucified for your sin and who rose again and reigns. Peter went on to say that the promises of forgiveness of sin and the subsequent pouring out of the Holy Spirit on those who believe were not just for a select group that day in Jerusalem. He goes on and he says, it is rather for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. That's why I, I think this was worth our time this morning to go back and look at repentance and the essence of man's response to the gospel. We have to be clear about these things. We need to proclaim the gospel for what it is, that it is the Son of God come in flesh, attested to by his signs, living a perfect life, that he then gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that he died in our place, made atonement for us, and rose again. Peter will say this only slightly differently years later when he writes 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, died in our place. The righteous one took our unrighteousness upon himself in order that he might now impart back to us his righteousness by dying in our place. By God's grace, a people who long for peace are now given through Jesus the greatest peace of all, peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins. We are, we are able to no longer be at odds with the one who made us. This is the gospel we have been called to give witness to. It is, it is incomplete if we fail to warn people that their sins separate them from God. It is only a partial gospel if we fail to tell them that because of their sinfulness, they stand judged and condemned by him. Therefore, we must speak truth. We must speak of the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness. And then we must preach the grace of God for providing his son as the lamb, as the perfect sacrifice, who is now the Lord who is alive. And we must call people to turn, to acknowledge that the way that they have been going, that all of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior know from our own past history the way that we have gone has been in enmity to him. It's been in hostility toward God. And we must turn from that and believe on the one who took our unrighteousness and suffered in our place that he might make us alive and give us life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us again that the proclamation of the gospel is not for a certain subset of Christians who are particularly trained and equipped and skilled. 
for reminding us that Peter, an ordinary guy, is able to open your word and speak its truth to people and that your spirit then powerfully takes your word to transform human hearts. Thank you for showing us how the the sword of the spirit works, how Peter, as he proclaims your truth, and is, that, that truth is used to, to lay open the hearts of these individuals, to cause them to, to see things that they hadn't seen before and now clearly understand who Jesus is. Thank you that your, your spirit is at work in your people in no less or greater measure than it was through Peter on that day in Pentecost, that the fullness of your spirit rests on your people, And that you have empowered us to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and calling people to turn from their sin and to find forgiveness in him. Lord, for we who have been forgiven, for we who have been called by you into your glorious kingdom, whose eyes have been opened to see the light and the life of Christ, we are full of gratitude at your grace. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you that it is is not anything that we did, any merit on our part, anything that, that commended us to you, but rather it was your grace that caused us to see Jesus for who he is and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Help us as we go from here, as we go from our homes, as we encounter loved ones and neighbors and people around us who are are clearly desperate for some message of hope, for something that would bring peace to their troubled hearts. Help us to, to proclaim the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare to them a Savior who offers them life and forgiveness of their sins. Thank you for for banishing that great enemy of sin and death, for disarming it at the cross, and for giving to your people life and forgiveness. These things we pray in great praise to our Savior in his name. Amen.